Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father in heaven, as we open your holy word today, as we've done before, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We realize that without your help, we cannot understand your word. And so we ask, Father, that you will come close to us, and through the ministration of the Holy Spirit, you will open our minds and hearts that we might understand and receive your word. And we thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps there's no item in archaeology that has become so famous in the Christian world as well as in the non-Christian world as the Ark of the Covenant. You know, there are many theories about where the Ark of the Covenant is found. I'd like to share with you as we begin our study the different theories about the location of the Ark of the Covenant. Some people believe that it's in Gordon's Calvary. That is uh, right underneath Golgotha where Jesus was crucified in some cave or tunnel there. Others believe that the Ark of the Covenant is in Kuwait. Still others believe that it's somewhere in Hezekiah's tunnel near Jerusalem. Others still believe that it's found in En Gedi where the Dead Sea Scrolls were located uh, in 1948. Uh, still others believe that it's found somewhere in Bethlehem in a cave or perhaps in Ethiopia. And there's a very strong theory that it's found somewhere in a cave on Mount Nebo where Moses uh, died and was buried. Now this is the idea that is presented in an apocryphal book which is the second book of Maccabees. Now I need to make it very clear that the books of Maccabees are not inspired. They're not part of the canon of scripture. But they are of very important historical value. And so I'm going to read from 2 Maccabees chapter 2 and verses 4 through 8 uh, what Maccabees says about the location of the Ark of the Covenant and where it was placed. Uh, this is speaking about the prophet Jeremiah who supposedly hid the Ark of the Covenant right before the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what it says there in 2 Maccabees 2 verses 4 through 8. It was also in the writing that the prophet Jeremiah, having received an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow with him, and that he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up, that's Mount Nebo, and had seen the inheritance of God. And Jeremiah came and found a cave, and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense, and he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up to mark the way, but could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, The place shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. And then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear, as they were shown in the case of Moses, and as Solomon asked, that the place should be specially consecrated. And so basically this idea is that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant in a cave and it will be brought forth when God manifests himself as he did when he filled the temple or the sanctuary in the days of Moses and the temple in the days of Solomon. Now Ellen White adds her testimony. She seems to confirm uh, what is found in the second book of Maccabees. It appears to be a genuine tradition. Uh, in the book Prophets and Kings, page 453, she had this to say about what happened to the Ark of the Covenant, where it was placed, and if it will be brought forth again. This is what she says. 
among the righteous still in Jerusalem, to whom had been made plain the divine purpose, were some who determined to place beyond the reach of ruthless hands the sacred ark containing the tables of stone, on which had been traced the precepts of the Decalogue. This they did. With mourning and sadness they secreted the ark in a cave, where it was to be hidden from the people of Israel and Judah because of their sin, and was to be no more restored to them, that is to the Jews. That sacred ark is yet hidden. It has never been disturbed since it was secreted. And so she confirms that the Ark of the Covenant was placed in a cave, and it has been in that cave ever since. In other places in her writings, she indicates that the tables of the law which were found inside the Ark of the Covenant will be brought forth before the world as a testimony at the end of time that the law of God is still binding even today. And so in our study today we are going to take a look at the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to speak about the different aspects about the Ark of the Covenant. Now the first thing that I want us to notice is uh, something about the Ten Commandments which were found inside the Ark of the Covenant. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 11, and we're going to notice several things about the Ten Commandments when they were given to Moses and to Israel on Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 11. In this verse we find that God Himself personally came down upon Mount Sinai when He gave the Ten Commandments. This is significant because the rest of the Bible, God simply spoke to the prophet and the prophet wrote it in a book or wrote it on parchment. But with the Ten Commandments, the Bible tells us that God did not merely reveal this to the prophet and have the prophet write it. God came down in person, according to Scripture, to give the Ten Commandments. Notice Exodus chapter 19 and verse 11. It says here, And let them, God is speaking, be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord, notice, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So notice that God Himself, according to Exodus 19 verse 11, had told Moses that He was going to come down in person upon Mount Sinai when He was going to give the Ten Commandments. But God was not going to come by Himself. The Bible tells us that he was going to come there with 10,000 of his saints. In other words, he was going to come down to Mount Sinai with the angels. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. This is reminiscing about the experience at Mount Sinai, and it says this, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000 of saints. Now, what was he coming for? Notice what the verse says at the very end. And he came with 10,000 of his saints. From his right hand came what? A fiery law for them. Now, what were the Ten Commandments written with? They were written in fire, according to this. So did God come by himself when he came down to Mount Sinai? No. He actually came down when He revealed His law with 10,000 of His saints. And who are those 10,000 of His saints? They are what? They are angels, exactly. 
Now another unique thing about the Ten Commandments is that God actually spoke the Ten Commandments. He not only came down Himself personally, but the Bible tells us that God also spoke the Ten Commandments with His own lips. He didn't tell the prophet, you speak them, God spoke them Himself. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 11 to 13. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 11 through 13. Here we find these words. Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And now notice verse 12. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. So he declared to you his covenant. Notice God declared to them his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So notice that this passage tells us very clearly that God himself spoke the Ten Commandments. Another interesting and unique thing about the Ten Commandments, and we just read it in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13, is that the Ten Commandments were actually written by God Himself as well. Notice Exodus 31 and verse 18, which underlines this same thought that we read a moment ago in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 13. Exodus 31 and verse 18, speaking about the, the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, it says this, And when he had made, that is when God had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of whom? Written with the finger of God. So God comes down personally, God speaks them personally, and God writes them personally as well. This makes the Ten Commandments unique. And He doesn't come by Himself. He comes down with 10,000 of His saints. By the way, when Moses broke the tables of the law, God told Moses to bring two additional tables of stone to the top of the mountain. And God said, I will write again on those tablets. Interesting that God the second time also wrote the Ten Commandments Himself. Notice that in Exodus 34 and verse 1. Exodus 34 and verse 1. Speaking about the second tables of stone, it says there, And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And now notice what God says, And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So who wrote the Ten Commandments the second time? God did. You know the rest of the Bible, God spoke to the prophet and the prophet wrote it down. But God says when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I'm coming down myself, I'm speaking these myself, and I'm writing these myself. And I'm coming down with 10,000 of my saints. Now another interesting thing about the revealing of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai was the so-called natural phenomena that accompanied the giving of the Ten Commandments. Notice Exodus chapter 19 and verses 16 through 19. And don't forget these details because we're going to come back to this a little bit later on in our study. Exodus 19 verses 16 through 19. Speaking about Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai and what took place on the mountain, we're told this. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were, now listen carefully, thunderings and lightnings 
and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Notice that there was an earthquake. Verse 19, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. In other words, God's voice was heard. So notice the phenomena that take place when God reveals the Ten Commandments. There's an earthquake, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's fire and smoke, and the voice of God is heard. Now it's interesting to notice what God told Israel to do in the light of the fact that God was going to reveal the Ten Commandments. God told them that they needed to prepare in a special way when God was going to reveal His law. We find this in Exodus chapter 19 and verses 10 and 11. Notice the response of the people, what the people were supposed to do when God came to reveal His law. It says there in Exodus 19 verses 10 and 11, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and listen carefully, and let them wash their clothes. What do clothes represent in the Bible? What do garments represent in the Bible? They represent righteousness. They represent character. In other words, God is telling them to cleanse their what? To cleanse their life, to cleanse their character, because He's going to reveal His Ten Commandments. Verse 11, And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And so God reveals His law, the Ten Commandments, written by His own finger on tables of stone. Now the question is, what happened with the Ten Commandments after God gave them to Moses? Well, we all know that God told Moses to build a sanctuary in the wilderness. And one of the pieces of furniture in the sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant, which was found in the most holy place. You can see it there. Uh, and God told Moses to take the tables of the law and to place them inside the Ark of the Covenant. Let's read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we'll read, verse, read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 1, verse 2, and also verse 5. Notice what Moses did with the tables of the law after God wrote the Ten Commandments on tables of stone. It says there, At that time the Lord said to me, Hew for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make yourself an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. And you shall put them where? You shall put them in the ark. Verse 5. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark which I made, and there they are, just as the Lord commanded me. So where were the uh, Ten Commandments placed? Where the, were the tables of stone placed? They were placed inside the ark. By the way, this is the reason why the Ark is called the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ten Commandments were the stipulations of the covenants of God with Israel. In fact, let's read that in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verses 11 to 13. 
because the ark is called the ark of the covenant of the Lord. You can read that in Numbers 10 and verse 33, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And once again, the reason why it's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is because the Ten Commandments are the stipulations of the covenant. Let's notice that in Deuteronomy 4 and verses 11 to 13. It says there, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. And the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but saw no form. You only heard a voice. And now verse 13 is the key verse. So he declared to you his covenant. Now what is that covenant? So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. And what is the covenant? The what? The Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. Are you understanding why the Ten Commandments are called uh, the covenant? And why the Ark is called the Ark of the Covenant? Because the Ten Commandments are the stipulations or the rules of the covenant. By the way, the Ten Commandments were also called the tablets of the testimony. In fact, let's read that in Exodus 31 verse 18, which we read a few moments ago. But let's notice this particular detail now. Exodus 31 and verse 18. It says here, and when he had made, that is when God had made, an end of speaking with him, that is with Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the what? Of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So the Ten Commandments are called the testimony, and they're also called the covenant. And the ark is called the ark of the testimony, and it's called also the ark of the covenant. So the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, and then the question is, where was the Ark of the Covenant placed? Well, I gave you the answer a little while ago. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the most holy place of the sanctuary. Let's read that in Exodus chapter 26 and verses 31 to 34. Exodus 26 and verses 31 through 34 tells us, where the Ten Commandments were placed, and then where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. It says there in Exodus 26 and verse 31, You shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver and you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then, notice, then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be the divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. So the question is, where was the ark of the covenant placed? It was put in the most holy place of the sanctuary in the very center of the most holy place of the sanctuary. Now, when was the Ark of the Covenant brought to view in the religious year of Israel? The fact is that there was the daily service in the sanctuary and there was the yearly service. The daily service had to do with things taking place in the court, the sacrifice and the labor, and also it had to do with the implements that were found in the holy place of the sanctuary. You can see it here, the candlestick, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. 
but there was one apartment that was brought to view once a year at the end of the religious year, and that was the most holy place of the sanctuary. In other words, the most holy place of the sanctuary was the central focus at the end of the year on what was known as the Day of Atonement. In fact, let's read about that in Leviticus chapter 16 and verses 13 through 15. Exodus 16 and verses 13 through 15. It says there, and in a moment I'm going to add some explanations to this passage, uh, it says, And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Verse 14, He shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now on the day of atonement the sanctuary was cleansed from all of the sins that had entered the sanctuary in the course of the year. But on the day of atonement uh, the sanctuary itself was cleansed. In other words, sins entered the sanctuary every day when people confessed the sins and they repented of sin. The sins entered the sanctuary and were deposited there. But on the Day of Atonement, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat of the most holy place of the ark and the sins that had been transferred there throughout the course of the year now were taken out of the sanctuary. In other words, the sanctuary was cleansed. This is another way of describing the judgment. In other words, on Great Judgment Day, the cases of the Israelites were examined. Those who had confessed their sins and placed their sins in the sanctuary through the blood could receive the absolute certainty that their sins had been eradicated, not only from their lives, but they had been eradicated from the presence of God in the sanctuary. Now, there's some other interesting things about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant actually had tremendous power. The Ark of the Covenant had tremendous saving power, but it also had great destroying power. I want you to notice Numbers chapter 10 and verses 35 and 36. Numbers chapter 10, 35 and 36. You know, when Israel was in a covenant relationship with the Lord, the Ark was a source of comfort for them. They could trust that the ark was going to protect them from their enemies. In fact, notice Numbers chapter 10 and verses 35 and 36. It says here, So it was, whenever the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. So notice that they took the ark to battle, and the Bible tells us that when the ark was lifted up, the enemies of Israel were scattered. It was a source of comfort and assurance to Israel when they were in a covenant relationship with the Lord. In other words, when God's people came to the Lord in humility and in repentance, confessing their sins, the ark was a symbol of salvation. It was a symbol of assurance. But on the other hand, when people trampled upon the commandments of God and broke their covenant relationship with the Lord, then the ark became not a source of comfort and salvation, but it became a source of destruction. I want to give you one more example of how the ark was actually a saving uh, 
piece of furniture to the Lord, to the people of the Lord, when they were in a covenant relationship with him. And then I'm going to show you several examples of how the Ark of the Covenant brought destruction upon those who were not faithful to God. You remember when Israel crossed the Jordan River when they entered the Promised Land. The story is found in Joshua chapter 3. They came to the edge of the Jordan River, and there was this tremendous barrier. In fact, the Jordan was at flood stage at this point. Now how, uh, they, they asked themselves, are we going to cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land? Well, the Lord performed a tremendous miracle, and really the Ark of the Covenant was involved in this tremendous miracle. I want to read you a statement that we find in uh, volume 4 of the Testimonies, page 157 and 158, about this event of the drying up of the Jordan to allow Israel to cross into the Promised Land. Ellen White says here, the priests obeyed the commands of their leader and went before the people, notice, carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The Hebrew hosts took up the line of march and followed this symbol of the divine presence, that is the Ark of the Covenant. The wide column filed down the bank of Jordan, and as the feet of the priests were dipped in the brim of the river, the water was cut off from above and the volume below rolled on, leaving the bed of the stream dry. When they, bearing the Ark of the Covenant, stood safe upon the farther shore, God removed His mighty hand, and the accumulated waters rushed down a mighty cataract in the natural channel of the stream. Jordan rolled on, a resistless flood overflowing all its banks. You can almost imagine what it must have been like for the Lord to perform this tremendous miracle of salvation, to open up the Jordan so that the people of Israel could cross. Because at this point, they were in a good, proper relationship, covenant relationship with the Lord. But as I mentioned, the Ark of the Covenant was not only a source of assurance to those who were in a covenant relationship with the Lord. The Ark also could be a very destructive power when people trampled upon God's commandments and were not in a covenant relationship with Him. You remember the story of the destruction of Jericho. Did the ark play a central role in the destruction of Jericho? It most certainly did. It went before the armies of the children of Israel. In fact, let's read Joshua 6 and verses 6 and 7. Joshua chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7 so that we can understand the role of the ark in the destruction of Jericho. It says here in Joshua 6 and verse 6, Then Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the Ark of the Lord. And you know on the seventh day they marched around the city seven times and what happened? The walls of Jericho crumbled and the city was taken by Israel. The uncircumcised inhabitants of Jericho were destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant became a symbol of destruction to those who were enemies of God's people. You also remember the story of Uzzah. Do you remember the story of Uzzah? God had told the priests, don't you touch the Ark of the Covenant. Don't you dare touch the Ark of the Covenant. The Bible tells us that when the ark was coming back to Jerusalem after it had been in the cities of the Philistines, that it looked like the ark was going to fall off a cart, and one of the individuals, his name was Uzzah, reached out 
and touched the ark. Let's read about it in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. Uzzah had broken the covenant of the Lord. He had disobeyed God, an explicit command of God. Notice 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. It says, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. So the ark was not only a source of salvation, it was also a source of destruction for those who knowingly and willingly trampled upon God's word. You also remember when the ark was taken to the cities of the Philistines, that from the ark came forth plagues. Do you remember this, that the ark poured out plagues? In fact, let's read it in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 6. It says here, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. That was their patron god. Verse 6, But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And if you continue reading, you'll find that the Philistine cities, they passed it on from city to city because nobody wanted the Ark of the Covenant, because the Ark of the Covenant was pouring out plagues upon the uncircumcised Philistines. And so we find that the Ark of the Covenant was powerful to save those who were in covenant relationship with the Lord, but it was also powerful to destroy those who were not in a covenant relationship with God. Now let's transition to another temple, to another Ark of the Testament. We're going to talk now about the sanctuary in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant in the heavenly sanctuary. I want you to notice that the, that the sanctuary that was built on earth was actually a copy of a pattern of the genuine sanctuary that God showed Moses on the mountain. Notice Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. Exodus chapter 25 and verse 40. What I want you to notice here is that the earthly sanctuary was actually a copy or a scale model, if you please, of the heavenly sanctuary. It says there in Exodus 25 and verse 40, God is speaking to Moses, and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. In other words, God showed Moses on the mountain a scale model of the heavenly sanctuary, and he said, make the earthly sanctuary in harmony with this scale model. Now the book of Hebrews amplifies this point. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 1 through 5, where clearly we find the idea that the earthly sanctuary was actually a shadow or a copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. Here it says, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and now listen, and of the what? Of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. 
For if he were on earth, that is if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. And now notice this, who serve the copy and shadow, in other words, these earthly, the earthly sanctuary and the earthly priests serve as what? The copy and shadow of what? Of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24 amplifies this point about the earthly sanctuary being a copy or a shadow of the replica that God showed Moses on the mountain, which is really a scale model of the great heavenly sanctuary. Notice Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. It says here, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are what? Copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the question is, is there a heavenly sanctuary, which is the great original, of which the earthly sanctuary is a shadow or a copy or a scale model? Absolutely, the Bible is very clear about this. So I'd like to ask you, do you suppose that in the heavenly sanctuary there was also going to be a day of atonement, a day of judgment when God was going to cleanse the sanctuary as well and was going to perform a work of judgment? Absolutely. In fact, let's notice Daniel chapter 7 and verses 9 and 10 and then we'll read verses 13 and 14. Let me give you a little bit of the chronology here. And this is something that we're going to study in more detail a little bit later on in this series. Uh, Daniel chapter 7 gives a sequence of powers. You have a lion, which represents Babylon. You have a bear, which represents the Medes and Persians. You have a leopard that represents Greece. You have a dragon beast that represents the Roman Empire. Then the dragon beast sprouts ten horns, which represents the divisions of the Roman Empire. And then among those ten horns rises a little horn, who rules 1,260 years, and those 1,260 years end in the year 1798. And then, as soon as this little horn power receives its deadly wound in 1798, we find this interesting scene in Daniel 7 and verses 9 and 10. Let's read about it. Here Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place. By the way, those thrones are occupied by the heavenly jury. And it continues saying, And the Ancient of Days was seated. Which means that he must not have been seated before. Who is the Ancient of Days, by the way? The Ancient of Days is God the Father. Now, it describes what this Ancient of Days looks like. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and now listen to this, a thousand thousands ministered to him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Is this the same expression that we found when God on Mount Sinai revealed his Ten Commandment law? Absolutely. He comes now for the judgment with ten thousand of his saints. And notice what it continues saying, the court was what? The court was seated and the books were open. So where is this judgment taking place? On earth or in heaven? It's taking place in heaven because it's taking place before the Ancient of Days and it's taking place in the midst of the angels. Now let's go to verse 13. 
I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, who would that be? Jesus Christ, coming with the clouds of heaven. What do the clouds of heaven represent? The angels. He came where? To the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And now notice what He goes there for. It says, Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and His kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Do you know what the purpose of the judgment is? You know, when we talk about Jesus going into the presence of His Father to get the kingdom, you know, usually we think of the kingdom as a geographical territory. But really, what is the kingdom of Jesus Christ? The kingdom of Jesus Christ is composed of what? It's composed of His people. But does He have to determine and reveal who His people are before He can establish His kingdom? Of course. So what Jesus does, He goes into the presence of His Father. His Father sits. The court session begins. Jesus goes in. And now, at the conclusion of the judgment, it's been revealed who are His. The sanctuary is cleansed, in other words, from the sins of the people, and Christ's kingdom is made up. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now, if this judgment takes place in heaven, which it does, and it takes place in the midst of 10,000 of His saints, what would be the standard of the judgment? What was in the very center of the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. Are the Ten Commandments the standard of the judgment? In other words, the norm that God uses to evaluate people? Absolutely. Notice what we find in James chapter 2 and verse 12. James chapter 2 and verse 12. It says here, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by what? By the law of liberty. So what is it that's going to judge God's people? What are God's people going to be compared with? Their, their works or their lives? With what? With the law. And notice not, it's not a law of bondage. It's a law of what? Of liberty. Notice also Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 12 and 13. Here in these verses that are very well known, it says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and what? And keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or or evil. Do the commandments of God have anything to do with the judgment? Of course. Here Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, because God is going to bring every work into what? God is going to bring every work into judgment, whether it be a good work or whether it be what? An evil work. And by the way, some people say, well, I'm saved by faith. That's true. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith. But the Bible also says that we will be judged by works. See, we're saved by grace through faith, but what is the evidence that we had genuine faith? The evidence is found in our works. And what are our works compared with? They are compared with God's holy law. Now the question is, does God have a right to judge us? Why does God have a right to judge us? Well, of course, because He's our Creator. Notice Revelation chapter 14 and verses 6 and 7. Revelation 14 and verses 6 and 7. Here we find the end time judgment described. And it gives us the reason why God has a right to judge the human race. 
It says there in Revelation 14, 6 and 7, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Now let's stop there for a moment and let me ask you this question. Um, while this gospel is being preached, is it possible to be saved? Is the door of mercy still open while the gospel is being preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Of course, because if the door of probation had closed, why preach? Now I want you to notice something very interesting in verse 7. After saying that the everlasting gospel is given to, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, it says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment will come. Ah, thank you very much. It doesn't say the hour of His judgment will come. It says the hour of His judgment has come. Does the judgment take place while the door of mercy is still open? While the gospel is being preached, yes or no? Absolutely. So this must be a pre-advent judgment, and it must mean that it's taking place where? Not on earth, but in heaven. Where in heaven specifically? Where did the judgment take place in Israel? In the most holy place. And what was at the center of the most holy place? The ark. And what was inside the ark? The Ten Commandments. Now, notice what it continues saying. Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And here, give, here it gives us the reason why God has a right to judge us. And worship Him who what? Who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So the judgment transpires while the door of mercy is still open, while the three angels' messages are being proclaimed. Is there a time, however, when the sanctuary service in the most holy place is going to close and is going to end? Absolutely. And the very next chapter in the book of Revelation, after saying the hour of His judgment is come, and after telling us that that event takes place in heaven before Jesus comes, while the door of mercy is still open, in the very next chapter, we're told that the time is coming when the sanctuary service is going to close. And nobody's going to be able to enter the sanctuary anymore for forgiveness of sin. Notice Revelation chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6. Revelation 15 verses 5 and 6. This is the very next chapter after John has written about the hour of God's judgment and the preaching of the everlasting gospel. He says this, After these things I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Where was that temple of the tabernacle? Oh, in heaven was what? Was open, which means that it must have been what? It must have been closed before because Jesus was in a different place. Now notice, and out of the temple came the seven angels having what? Seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen and having their chests Girded with what? Girded with golden bands. So who comes out of the temple now? The seven angels with what? With the seven last plagues. And if you continue reading there, it tells us that the temple is filled with smoke and no one is able to what? No one is able to enter the temple until the seven last plagues have been what? The seven last plagues have been poured out. Incidentally, Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19 describes this moment when the temple of God 
it was opened, and in Revelation chapter 15 it tells us when it's closed. Notice Revelation 11 and verse 19, the moment in which the temple or the most holy place was opened in heaven. It says, then the temple of God was what? Was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. And then what does it say? And there were what? Lightnings and noises and thunderings and an earthquake. Did we see those things before? Where did we see those things? On Mount Sinai when God revealed His law. So let me ask you, when the temple of God was open in heaven for the final judgment, do we find the same phenomena that were found when God revealed the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. The same identical phenomena. Now, you remember that the people at the foot of Mount Sinai were required to make a special preparation when God came to reveal His law. They were supposed to wash what? They were supposed to wash their garments. Is there a special preparation that needs to take place in the context of the judgment that is transpiring in heaven now? In preparation for the coming of Christ? Absolutely. Notice several texts that we find in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 12, it's speaking about God's people in the end time. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who what? Who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Is God going to have a group of people who keep His commandments at the end of time? Absolutely. Is the devil enraged against those who keep the commandments? Absolutely. Notice Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, or the remnant of her seed. And what characterizes that remnant? Who what? Who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice once again, they keep the commandments of God. Notice also Revelation chapter 22 and verses 14 and 15. Same idea coming through. Revelation 22 verses 14 and 15. It says there, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So are all of those who are going to enter through the gates commandment keepers? They most certainly are. What about those outside? Are they commandment keepers or commandment breakers? Breakers. Notice verse 15. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and what? And practices a lie. Is there a special work of purification that takes place in preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Let's read several other verses in Scripture. Notice 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 3. We're talking now about the preparation that Israel made when God came to reveal the Ten Commandments, how they washed their garments. The equivalent is that God's people, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are to wash their characters through the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And now notice verse 3. And everyone who has this hope, that is the hope of the coming of Jesus, in Him, 
what does he do? Purifies himself just as he is what? Just as he is pure. Notice Isaiah 33, 14 through 16, the same idea in the context of the second coming, the emphasis is constantly that God's people will have prepared, they will be pure, their lives will be in harmony with God's holy law. Isaiah 33 and verses 14 through 16. It says here, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. And then comes the question, who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who is the devouring fire? God. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? In other words, who's going to be able to live in the presence of God? Notice the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppressions, who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed, and shut his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high, his place of defense will be the fortress of rocks, bread will be given him, his water will be sure. So who are those who are going to be ready when Jesus comes? Notice the details, the character details, they walk righteously, they speak uprightly, they despise the gain of oppressions, they gesture with their hands, refusing bribes, they stop their ears from hearing bloodshed, they shut their eyes from seeing evil. In other words, their lives have been cleansed through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Incidentally, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary from the sins of the people, the people were supposed to be outside the sanctuary afflicting their souls and cleansing their lives from sin. Notice Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 29 on this point. Leviticus 23 and verse 29, speaking about what the people were supposed to be doing, just like Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, Leviticus 23, 29, it tells us, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be what? Shall be cut off from his people. In fact, it says in that same chapter that he who does not sympathize with the work of the high priest will be destroyed from among the people. Notice also Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13, describing once again the day of atonement, when the life is going to be compared with God's holy law. Joel chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, and notice how, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. What did Israel do at Mount Sinai? They cleansed their garments and they rend their garments. But God is saying now, don't rend your garments. That was a symbol. What is he saying now? Don't rend your garments, but your what? Your heart. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Psalm 15 describes the same necessary preparation for the coming of Christ. Notice Psalm 15, and it's a short psalm, so we read all five verses. It says, it begins by, by asking a question, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Notice the answer. He who walks uprightly, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person, eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. 
He who does these things shall never be moved. Let's notice several other texts from the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. This theme comes through time and again that in preparation for the coming of Christ, not only must Christ cleanse the sins from the heavenly sanctuary, but Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, must cleanse the life from sin as well. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse what? Ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting what? Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Notice Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14. Time and again this theme comes through. Hebrews 12 and verse 14. Here the writer of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all people and what? Holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's read one more. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Titus 2 and verses 11 to 14. Speaking once again about the sterling character that God's people must have. It says there in Titus 2 verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying, now listen carefully, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, what do we need to deny? Ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for, notice this is in the light of the coming of Christ, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every what? Lawless deed, and then do what? Purify for Himself His own special people, zealous for what? Zealous for good works. One final point that I want to share with you as we draw this to a close. You remember that the Ark of the Covenant poured out plagues upon those who were not in a covenant relationship with the Lord. It was a source of protection for those who had a covenant relationship with God. But it was a destructive power upon those who were not right with the Lord. Go with me to Revelation chapter 16 and verses 17 to 21. This is our final passage in our study today. I want you to notice that when the temple is open at the very end of time and the angels come out to pour out the plagues, the seventh angel, when he pours out his plagues, you have the same phenomena that you had at Mount Sinai, but not now, not in a saving context, but in a destroying context. Notice Revelation 16 and verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Was there a voice heard at Mount Sinai? Was it God's voice? Absolutely. Notice what it continues saying. And there were noises. Did that happen at Sinai? Yes, and thunderings. Did that happen? Yes, and lightnings. How about that? Sure. Such And, and there was also a great what? Earthquake. Did that happen at Sinai? Absolutely. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. Then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. Do you remember that there was also fire on Mount Sinai? 
Notice that there are now stones of fire that fall. It says then in verse 21, And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. And by the way, this was not, this was not hail made of ice. This was fiery hail. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 9 and verses 24 and 25, and also the fact that the book of Revelation says that upon the wicked will fall fire and what? Fire and brimstone, which takes place at the moment of the seventh plague. And so what has God tried to teach us with the Ark of the Covenant? What God is saying is that there was a sanctuary on earth in which was the Ark of the Covenant. In the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God, that was used to evaluate the lives of His people on the great day of atonement. His people were supposed to cleanse their lives so that God would save them in the great day. Is that parallel to what is transpiring now in heaven? Same thing is happening in heaven. Only now Israel is not in view, the whole human race is in view. The lives of all are being compared with the great standard of justice, God's holy law. And God is inviting us now in this time of mercy and grace to come into the sanctuary with our sins, to confess our sins, to repent of sin so that our sins can be cleansed from the sanctuary and from our lives. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.